You are Locked On Packers, your daily Green Bay Packers podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. R-E-L-A-X. Relax. We're going to be okay. It is time. It is time. I feel like we can win the table. We're going to do it. You are Locked On Packers, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. I am Peter Bukowski, and I cover the Packers for SB Nation. I cover the NFL for fans cited in Pro Football Weekly. And you can follow me on Twitter at Peter underscore Bukowski. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at Locked On Packers. You can like us on Facebook. You can review us on iTunes. Give us five stars. Let us know what you think. And you can always hit us up on the Locked on Packers fan hotline at 920-341-3775. It is Raiders week three of the exhibition season, and it doesn't look like we're going to get very many of the starters. Aaron Rodgers running with the scout team, and it does seem like Deshaun Kaiser is going to get his a fair amount of work. Brett Hundley is going to get some reps. Mike McCarthy said Kaiser has actually gotten more reps than Hundley this week, which may hint that this number two quarterback race is narrowing. We're going to get to this quarterback race later in the show. I want to I want to lead off the show talking about a different issue, and that is the new lowering of the helmet penalty. This is a question I got yesterday, and it, and it is something that I have discussed seemingly ad nauseum on Twitter over the last week or so. And I want to start at a very simple place. The idea of trying to make the game safer by protecting the tacklers rather than the tacklees, rather than the guys being tackled, is an admirable goal by the NFL. And it shouldn't be hard to figure out why this was a goal that they set out to try and achieve when you have someone like Ryan Shazier, who we saw at the game last week, who can barely walk and who, on a fairly routine play, made a fairly routine tackle and may never walk or run normally again, much less play football, because of the way that he made a tackle. And it was not a vicious tackle. It was not a violent tackle. It was a normal tackle. But Ryan Shazier made the tackle in this seminal game. And I think we are going to come to consider this game a seminal game with his head down. And his spine got compressed. And I will be honest with you, as someone who played football growing up, even before Friday Night Lights and Jason Street, the you know one of the the central characters, if not the main character of the pilot, and and moving forward, before he was paralyzed in the first episode, I hadn't read the book, I hadn't seen the movie, none of this had come out yet when I started playing the game. One of the reasons I didn't like to tackle was because. I didn't like to drop my head. And it seemed like everyone who tackled was okay with dropping their head and making contact with someone else's helmet. I just, I didn't like the danger that that put me in. I didn't like the precarious situation my head and neck were in. Didn't make me feel comfortable. I didn't like playing defense. And and some people do and plenty of people do. And that's fine. It wasn't me. I, was an, I ended up being an offensive player and... 
uh, you know, it ended up not being a problem for me. But early in my high school career, even I was a defensive player only and was a backup offensive player. Now that flipped as a senior. But the point is, the correct way to tackle is with your head up. So you can see what you're hitting. This was a Mike Singletary thing. Hall of Fame Bears linebacker, uh, not so Hall of Fame coach, <laughs> to say the least. But he was a guy, he said, he had the, he was famous because his eyes, he, he just, his eyes were wide open, wide open. And for football players, that is pretty rare. He, he just, he, he, he looked like a crazy person on the field. He really did. And his thing was, you can't hit what you can't see. So you have to keep your head up and your eyes open to make a tackle. This rule, and defensive players are not stoked about it. Charles Woodson has railed against this rule. Richard Sherman has railed against this rule. And what we have to understand is, first and foremost, any rule is going to be called inconsistently. That's just the nature of sports. All fouls are called with some inconsistency. So there are going to be some bad calls. But any rule that aims to make the game safer, head, spine, neck, these are rules worth pursuing and worth figuring out, worth worth practicing until the referees become more proficient at calling them correctly because it is difficult to make these calls at 100 miles an hour. It is extremely difficult. I understand that. But a, a friend said to me, well, how do you make these decisions as a defender going that fast? And the answer is simple. There's no decision. If you tackle correctly, if you tackle the way it's taught, a form tackle, your head is up. Your head is up. So you should never be in a position to have to make a choice about whether your head is up or your head is down. Now, if you want to if you want to quibble about these rules, I think the way that you can do that is by saying, well, it doesn't seem like they're as willing to call offensive players who it is much more instinctive for an offensive player to, as he's going to go try and break a tackle, lower his head and try to run someone over. That is instinctive. You would do that with, with or without a helmet. One of the reasons the game has become so violent is because the, the equipment has become like body armor. Rugby players don't tackle the same way NFL players do because they don't have shoulder pads and helmets as weapons. They just have their bodies. And if they were to do that, they would separate their shoulders. They would hurt themselves. This is the problem the NFL has. The, the pads and the equipment make it so players can take unnecessary risks with their bodies. But I mean, even Richard Sherman complained about this. And and look, I I know Packer fans, they're they're out there playing the world's smallest violin for the Richard Sherman tears. I get that. But his complaints were, you know, you're you're running downfield, and he he basically said, you know, I I dare you to try and make this tackle without lowering your head. Well, here's the thing: you can do it. There are plenty of tackles every game. The fact that these are this is not called every play is proof that you can make a tackle without doing it. I understand the instincts. I understand that that this has not been called your whole career to this point. And so it's weird. I don't care. Brain health, spine health, neck health, 
it's too important to not do everything you can to try and prevent needless hits. And I understand the criticism of these these things that say, well, you're never going to get all of these violent parts of the game out of football. You're not. And you shouldn't try to because there are plenty of legal clean hits that are violent. I mean, I can think of a ton of them. I remember in practice, not to not to go all Uncle Rico on you, but I remember in practice, I lit a guy up in a, in, in a clean way and he got up and he was stoked. Like, yeah, let's go. That's part of what the competitive spirit is about. You're going to come at me. I'm going to come at you and we're going to see who is stronger, who is tougher, who is the better man. That is what this game is ultimately about. But in a clean and professional way that also sanctifies the body. These players have such a narrow window to make money. It's not that we have to take all the violence and all of the risk out of the game, but what we have to do is take the needless violence and the needless risk out of the game. The plays that can be omitted, that can be avoided, and these are plays that can be avoided. Not everything can be avoided, and there's going to be some penalties on plays where it's like, well, what do you what do you want the defender to do? Because he is starting his run at a certain aim point, and within a millisecond, the receiver has changed that aim point, and things are going to happen. That just sucks to be a defensive player. And we're just going to have to live with those plays. That's just life. But there, that doesn't mean we shouldn't also try and take steps to make the game safer through these kinds of measures where you're taking an avoidable play, where you're actually protecting the defender rather than the offensive player and saying, we want to protect you from yourself. You need to make a form tackle because we don't want you to have a spinal problem that keeps you from playing the game. We are protecting you, the defensive player. By saying you need to tackle with proper form. We need to teach kids to tackle with proper form. We need to we need to keep that up through the high school and college ranks. That's why I think targeting, despite the fact that it is an inconsistently applied rule, I think it's a good one. This is a lot like a lot of systems whereby you would rather more people be penalized for the sake of everyone's safety than the other way where not enough people are being penalized. Because this isn't the criminal justice system. We're not indicting anybody. No one is spending any time in jail. The bad hits are the ones that get fined. Not every flag is going to be a fine. This is people's brain health. And everyone needs to take every precaution possible to protect the brains and the spines of these players. And it is it must be nice for those of you who are sitting at your computers or your phones or wherever you are to be able to say well the game is wussifying or let's just put flags on everyone. Isn't it easy for you someone who is risking absolutely nothing by having this take to say oh well the game's gone soft while players who have spent their entire careers building towards something, putting their bodies through hell, putting their families through hell for a four-year window on average of earning their money 
through great bodily harm for themselves. Aren't you a hero for saying they aren't tough enough for playing the game the way that you grew up watching it? I mean, that is just ridiculous. It is, it is totally fair for you to think, oh, well, it's not the game that I grew up watching. It's not. And you know what? That's probably a good thing. Because look at the players in the 60s, 70s, 80s, even early 90s. I mean, Brett Favre. I'm sure a lot of people listening to this show right now idolized Brett Favre growing up. But I bet he's 15 years younger than most of the dads of the people listening to this show. Maybe 10. Regardless. He looks older than all of them. Why? Because he put his body through hell. These guys can't walk. Some of them can't talk. I mean, we see the CTE. We see the damage it does to the brain. All of the, oh, football is dying. No, it's not. More than 70 of the top 100 rated telecasts last year were, were NFL games. So that's just garbage. But we can't take any rule even if it is inconsistently applied in year one and say, this is a bad rule, the league needs to do away with it. It's not a bad rule. If the problem is the application of the rule, then we have to give this rule time to grow and evolve and change and for the referees to get better at calling it because it's a rule designed to protect players. And if we want to protect this game, then we have to protect the players, not from everything, but from the things that are avoidable. That is the point. That has always been the point of personal foul penalties and unnecessary roughness penalties. It's that they're unnecessary. You can make a big hit. You can blow a guy up. You can, you can beat a guy down as long as it is appropriate and fair within the rules. And as long as everyone is being safe. The, every NFL player, his body is his livelihood. If the NFL allows players to be reckless with their livelihood, they risk the long-term future of the game. And we as fans and observers and media people should be supportive of any measure that seeks to protect the very thing that determines the vitality of this game long-term, especially if you love it. If you love it, you have to be protective of it. And speaking of being protective, I want to protect really good journalism. And that is what The Athletic is seeking to do. I understand not everyone is used to paying for digital content. But when you were growing up, and maybe you didn't do this, maybe your parents did this, they bought a newspaper. And you, the newspaper didn't just magically appear on your doorstep, did it? You had to pay for that newspaper. And if you can still go buy newspapers. If you want the best content, you should be willing to pay for it. And that's what The Athletic believes. They are a subscription-based publisher hoping to create smarter sports coverage for diehard fans like you. The model's simple. No ads, no pop-ups, no autoplay videos. Instead, readers subscribe for authentic, in-depth coverage written by journalists who know their teams inside and out. The coverage is going to go beyond game recaps, trade speculation, to provide you with smarter analysis and a deeper perspective about teams and the league that you care about. Subscribers get access to local and national content with your subscription. So you wouldn't just get the Packers, the Badgers, the Brewers. You'd get the national coverage, the fantasy football coverage. Everything that comes with the athletic subscription is there for you. 
subscribe and be a part of the future of sports journalism. And I want to give you a discount. I'm going to make this really easy for you. I'm going to give you 40% off your first year subscription. That's about $3 a month, less even. I mean, you can't get two sodas in a month for that much. You go to theathletic.com slash Packers. That's theathletic.com slash Packers, And you'll get 40% off your first year. I've had a lot of questions about the backup quarterback situation. And I wish I had better answers for you. I wrote about it for Acme Packing Company. And I have felt pretty strongly that the move for the Packers is to cut Brett Hundley at the end of the preseason and move forward with Deshaun Kaiser as the number two quarterback. And nothing that I've seen in this preseason has has dissuaded me from that. I don't think Kaiser has looked bad enough that they need a replacement plan. And I don't think Hundley has looked good enough that he has required the Packers keep him on this roster. And especially given what we saw last year, We know what that looks like. We know what the Brett Hundley experience feels and looks like, and it's not fun. (laughs) But Mike McCarthy talking this week said that he wants the 53 best guys. And if you don't put those best players on the team, then you have a problem in the locker room. And I think a lot of observers, media members, fans took that to mean if we need three quarterbacks, we're going to keep three quarterbacks. That has trickle-down effects to other parts of the roster. I think that essentially guarantees there was a question yesterday about Joel Buono. None of these running backs are sneaking onto the to the team. And maybe what they're going to do is hold on to Brett Hundley long enough to try and squeeze out some kind of value. Some team has an emergency at quarterback, and the only team that has anything of value to give them is the Packers. I find that unlikely, but it's not, not crazy. It's not impossible. It's looking more and more like the Packers simply will let Brett Hundley be on this roster as the break-in-case-of-emergency quarterback. If there is a prolonged absence, I don't think it's by any means a lock that he be the guy. If you're the Packers, what you're planning for is, okay, if, let's say, Rodgers gets a concussion late in a game and can't play the following week and it's just a one-week absence— do we feel more comfortable with Brett Hundley or Deshaun Kaiser? And and right now, they probably will say Brett Hundley. Now, to me, the difference in a player at another position, adding depth, providing potential special teams impact, the difference between what Brett Hundley can give them and what Kaiser could give them is not big enough to me to justify keeping both of them compared to keeping just one of them, in my opinion, Kaiser, and then one of these other special teams players, a backup corner, a backup linebacker, whatever it is. But that doesn't mean that that's what the Packers are going to do. That doesn't mean Green Bay agrees. It seems that Mike McCarthy is hinting that right now, and final cuts are not right now. We're about two weeks away from final cuts. But it seems like if final cuts were now, both quarterbacks would make the roster. And that would be a historical change from what Green Bay has wanted to do. Now, it used to be in the 90s, you kept three and two would dress and you were you were able to activate the third. But if you did that, the other quarterback on your roster was not able to come back in. You had two, you could get to that third player, but that always felt like a weird rule to me, but that is true. 
And eventually teams just said, well, then we're only going to keep two quarterbacks. And whatever happens has to happen. And if, if our starter goes down for a period of time, we have to put him on IR, then we can sign a backup off the street. There's always someone you can you can pick up who is going to be a suitable backup. Suitable is probably the wrong word, but a, a sufficient backup quarterback that at least is an emergency third quarterback for your team. Does Green Bay need to worry about that? Maybe, maybe not. Now they have Boyle. He has played well to this point. I think he could certainly sneak onto the practice squad. I think he may. The fact that most teams don't keep three quarterbacks, I think, hurts him. But he could sneak onto a team. He could sneak onto a practice squad that isn't Green Bay's. Maybe he feels like the better opportunity at a, at a number two job is somewhere else. I'm not worried about that. I'm really not. Because Hunley's contract is up after this year. Really like Deshaun Kaiser. And there's always these kind of street free agents who have some talent and can show. I mean, we're not that long ago talking about Taysom Hill and how how productive he looked, how talented he is, and the fact that he was the the heir apparent in New Orleans. That was always a joke to me, but people really said that. People really thought that. So, you know, it it's one of those things where Green Bay, if they want to keep two quarterbacks behind Aaron Rodgers, I understand the thought process behind it. But to me, that would say more about what they feel about the depth at other positions and how they feel about the starters, frankly, at other positions by saying we, we don't care as much about depth at other places. We we care and prioritize about the depth at the quarterback position. And, and frankly, I don't think that's a bad idea or place to come from if you're the Packers, given what we've seen happen to this team when they have to go to their backups. It was ugly Back in 2013, when they had to go to Tolzien, Seneca Wallace, and finally had to sign Matt Flynn off the street. It wasn't much better with Brett Hundley. This team understands what that looks like, and they want to avoid those scenarios again at all costs. All right, one more show this week. Then the game is Friday. We'll come back next week. We'll talk about that game Jason Hershorn is going to come back on the show. We're going to discuss 53-man roster projections. We're going to do a couple mailbag shows. I'm going to be on vacation, actually. I will physically be on vacation next week. And I look, once the season starts, I get no days off, basically. So I need the break. Before we get to the season, I hope you'll forgive me. We are not going to come back from Labor Day and talk about that fourth preseason game But what we will do is we will talk about it in the context of final cuts. We're going to talk about it in the context of who made the team, who didn't, who impressed, and who didn't. And that'll be the way that we analyze that fourth game. We will talk about the Jordy Nelson Bowl, Packers Raiders. We'll have that show. And then the rest of the week, we will talk 53-man roster projections and then answer your questions. Because the, the Locked on Packers fan hotline is crushing it. You guys are are just, you make my day every day with these questions. I love it. If you want to hit us up there, that's 920-341-3775. You can also do that on Twitter, at Peter underscore Bukowski. You can hit up the podcast, at Locked on Packers. Always love to see the questions that come in. They're, they're generally insightful, almost always useful, I think, in the scheme of this podcast. One of the questions that I got this week, I mean, we we started with the helmet rule because of a question that was asked on Twitter. So I, I, I read them, I, I 
try and respond to them when I can. And, and sometimes I turn them into an entire segment on this podcast. That is, that's what we do here. That is what the Locked On Packers community is all about. All right, one more show, and then the Raiders take on the Packers in the third preseason game. It seems like the Raiders are going to play their starters a lot more than Green Bay is going to play theirs. So this is a great opportunity for the Packers to measure themselves and measure their backups against legitimate starting level talent. It also is going to mean a lot of Khalil Mack talk during the course of that game, which I think is going to rile up Raiders and Packers fans alike. And then we'll be back next week to wrap up the preseason before the regular season starts. We're almost there. The best way for you to get ready for the regular season, to stay up to date on everything going on with your favorite team, you know what to do. Stay locked on, Packers.